0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Meredith Rose, Policy Counsel at Public Knowledge. We will discuss her work on licenses to stream music over the internet and the Copyright Licensing Board. So welcome to the podcast, Meredith. Thanks for having me. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. Um, as you know, I've been following your work on Twitter and elsewhere for quite some time now, and I'm really impressed by the fantastic uh, kind of uh, work you do disseminating information to the public about how copyright and and other kind of content-oriented um, policy uh, affects affects the public interest. So so, thanks for all that. And in <laughs> in particular, I really enjoyed the article you sent me recently, which really helped clarify for me a really complicated kind of copyright oriented subject matter. And I and I think if you know a copyright professor like me has a hard time wrapping my head around it, it's probably a little difficult for for the general public as well. So I'm really looking forward to helping people better understand how how we got where we are and and how this how this licensing regime actually works.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we sort of joked the other half of the music licensing team and uh, at, at Public Knowledge, my employer is uh, my colleague Dylan and when he joined on, we joked that the number of people who knew anything about how music licensing worked in Washington D.C. you know, increased by about Five to ten percent that day, because um, it is possibly outside of maybe vessel hull design. I think one of the most arcane uh, areas of copyright law. I think in terms of just sheer complexity that you could possibly get into.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot more at stake than at vessel hull design. <laughs>
1: I believe. Yeah. I think some. I think some shipbuilders might have words for that, but
0: well, I generally you know. Agree. Yeah. Some, someday I'll find someone who wants to stand up for, for vessel whole design uh, rights, but I have not come across that person yet. Um, so, so Meredith, I was wondering if you could start by just explaining to listeners how copyright in music actually works, right? So like what elements or aspects of a song are protected by copyright and how, in other words, what kinds of rights? Do copyright owners have? And sort of who, who owns those, those rights?
1: Yeah, so that is a complicated uh, answer, um, <laughs> well, perhaps unsurprisingly, given the lead into this episode. Um, so copyright in music, I think when most people think of music, they think of a track. They think of, uh, you know, Beyonce singing Formation. Um, and they think, oh, Beyonce owns the copyright in that song. Uh, in reality, there's actually two copyrights that inhere in any given musical track. Um, one is the underlying – what the law calls the musical work, uh, which in layman's terms essentially means the composition and the lyrics. So if you think about how the, uh, the song would be written out in sheet notation – uh, that's the musical work for the purposes of copyright law. So that's the output of songwriters, lyricists, um, composers, that that sort of cadre of artists. The other copyright subsists in the sound recording. And the sound recording is what it sounds like. That is the track. That is the particular instantiation that someone went into the studio, recorded their version of that musical work, and then released that into the world. Um, so those are two different copyrights. And that makes music licensing a little extra complicated, because uh, to license any track or a song in the sort of layman's understanding of it, you need to clear the rights both with the person who performed the the sound recording and the person who wrote the song underlying the sound recording. Um, This is true for a bunch of historical reasons. Um, If you get back into the very early parts of the 20th 20th century, um, musical... Musical compositions uh, at that point um, were copyright protected um, because copyright at that point really was considered more with sort of what was printed, uh, you know, and we didn't really have sound recording technology, certainly not to anything close to the extent we have today. Um, You know, you had some sort of Edison gramophone type recordings, but it wasn't a very widespread um, technology. And it certainly wasn't in every home. Uh, And so the real Sort of big stakeholders in music, as far as copyright was concerned, were the songwriters and the publishing houses that published those works. And so those were the first batch to get copyright protection. And sound recordings actually didn't have federal copyright protection until the 1970s. Prior to that, there was some copyright protection that existed state to state. California, sort of, you know, notably and for perhaps obvious reasons, tackled the issue when there was a state sound recording copyright. Um, I think Colorado had a state copyright prior to that, um, but it was just a very sort of piecemeal uh, issue. Um, and now nowadays, you know, if you release something in 2019, uh, it is going to have two copyrights. It's going to have one in the underlying musical work and one in the sound recording. Typically, mm-hmm. um, the way we think of in terms of artists, the underlying composition is owned by... The songwriter uh, and the sound recording is owned by the person who performed the sound recording. Uh, in reality, those rights are typically assigned uh, when you sign a contract, and so a songwriter often, often not always, um, but has assigned essentially an in you know a complete license to the work. Uh, to a publishing house and the sound recording artist has signed a complete license to their recording to the record label that they work for. Um, so I apologies in advance to your listeners. Sometimes I use the term songwriters and publishers somewhat interchangeably uh, mm. because those are the two entities that could be exercising their rights depending on what those contracts happen to look like. And- Recording artists and record labels, same same deal on that side. Um, some of some of them will have, uh, you know, as artists will have more direct control over the exercise of those rights than others. Um, and so, you know, I will try to keep my terminology straight. But if they start, if you're sort of running around <laughs> with four terms, that's why.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one of the things you pointed out as a practical matter in your article that seems like it complicates this situation even further is that, of course. You know, copyright is a essentially infinitely divisible right. And so the different kinds of rights granted by a copyright in each one of those works, and the different contexts in which those rights could be exercised are also sometimes split among different entities or different people. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's 100% correct. And again, this is, you know, this is Partially an artifact of the sequence in which these things got recognition under copyright law. Um, anyone who hasn't had the chance, um, Jessica Littman wrote a fabulous uh, book called *Digital Copyright*, where she sort of traces the history of, you know, how we got to the sort of late '90s Sonny Bono copyright term extension. Digital Millennium Copyright Act type fights, but it also follows the you know the history of copyright in the twentieth century is essentially one of sort of industry horse trading. Uh, it's someone came up with a business model and said to protect my business model, I need a copyright um, because there's something new that is coming in and potentially depriving me of a revenue stream. Um, and so it's this constant battle between rights holders and technology. So none of that particular policy aspect of it is new. Um, you know, the same thing happened with player pianos, um, with all of that as a sort of preface, um, it, as a practical matter, there are three rights that inhere in each of those copyrights. So copyright is, is sort of better envisioned as like a bundle of sub rights, um, it can include, depending on what kind of work you're talking about, if you're talking about a book, there's going to be kind of one relevant set of rights that are going to come up. If you're talking about a video game, there's going to be a different, a slightly different cross-section of those rights that are going to be relevant. For music, um, the three big ones are reproduction, distribution, and public performance. Those are the three, the three big moneymaker rights. Um, and... Uh, in that, there's also a, a kind of right called a sync right, which we'll probably end up talking about later, but that's a kind of public performance. Um, mm. So the right to reproduce the work, the right to distribute the work, and reproduction and distribution are usually bundled together. They're usually, for all intents and purposes, treated as kind of one right. Um, and then the right of public performance, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the right to perform the work sort of to the general public. Uh, in whatever through whatever means that happens to be. Um, so back in the early 20th century that for songwriters, uh, the right of public performance was the right uh, to basically be remunerated or to issue licenses for someone in a live band or concert venue to stand up and perform your song for an audience. Um, public performance is what's implicated when bars and restaurants play music over the loudspeakers. That's a public performance. Uh, it's implicated in streaming uh, of all kinds of varieties. It is ironically not uh, not universally implicated in terrestrial radio, uh, AM/FM radio, due to sort of weird historical reasons, um, which I won't, won't get too into. But it's when you think about if you're if you're blasting music out into the ether for people to hear outside of the comfort of your own home, that is a public performance.
0: Right. So, um, I mean, I, I think the historical story here is, is really interesting and sort of informs sort of where we are, where we are today. So I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about how in practice licensing for streaming over the internet actually works. In other words, what kinds of licenses and what kinds of parties does a streaming service have to negotiate with in order to stream music over the internet. And because, I mean, I don't know about other people, but I mean, I think of streaming as essentially equivalent to listening to the radio, like I used to when I was a kid before we had the the internet, right? Um, how does licensing for streaming differ from licensing for the radio and why? And does that difference or does that shift in sort of technologies? affect how the licensing regime functions and the kinds of licenses people have to get. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the interesting historical story here, and I, I alluded to this a minute ago, is that if you, again, you kind of have to th- keep in mind the trajectory of technology to understand why these rights spring up in the format and the application that they do. So you had um, songwriters who compose musical works and and that set of copyrights, those reproduction, distribution, and public performance were all pretty well locked in by the beginning half of the 20th century. Those were big moneymakers. Um, they had a pretty spectacular fight with player piano manufacturers <laughs> in the lead up to the 1909 Copyright Act. Um, and the dust, the the fight had been had and the dust had settled somewhat on that. So those were locked in. As you come up towards the second half of the 21st century, Um, And specifically, until you come up to the major copyright revision that happens in the 1970s, you have the rise of terrestrial AM-FM radio becomes the new major communications technology of the era. Um, And so you have all of a sudden recordings of music because recording technology has gotten better and it's sort of developing and becoming prevalent alongside this AM-FM radio boom. Um, And it's becoming... You know, it's broadcasting music directly into people's homes, pre-recorded music in a way that had never been possible before. Um, And so when you got to the 1970s, you had this booming record industry, which just simply hadn't existed at the time of the 1909 act because there hadn't been sound recording on this scale. Um, And so you had this booming recording industry. Uh, It was becoming increasingly national. And so the states that had decided they were going to give state copyright to... The sound recordings were, you know, they now had to operate across those state lines. So that got complicated. And the recording industry said, okay, well, we, you know, basically we want what the songwriters have. We want a reproduction right, a distribution right, and a public performance right recognized under federal copyright law that will apply no matter what jurisdiction we happen to be in, no matter who we're dealing with. Um, Congress did a couple of things in response to this. One was they said, okay, but we're only going to give it to you going forward. So songs recorded prior to, I believe the date is February 15th, 1972, were not covered by federal copyright law, um, which led to, you know, if anyone's been following music licensing news, the Hmm. Music Modernization Act, which passed last year um, and (laughs) consumed the time of a lot of people in Washington for basically all of 2018. um, Part of that was a fight about what to do with these pre-1972 recordings that had been kind of, you know, in this weird legal limbo where they were the only thing yeah. in the world still covered by state-level copyrights. Um, and the other thing that Congress did was Congress had the radio lobby came up to the Hill. And, you know, the broadcasters are, to this day, remain an incredibly, very powerful lobby. And so there's a, an interesting public choice story here. But they came up and said, you know, we are hugely important to the communities. We, by playing these sound recordings, are are basically giving free publicity to these record labels. Um, we're already paying the songwriters. They had been paying licenses for for transmitting the – for public performances of the underlying musical compositions. They hadn't had to really pay in any systemic way for paying for the sound recordings. And so they said, look, you know, do what you want. Just don't make the – whatever public performance you give if you decide to give one, don't make it apply to us. Uh, and so their Congress said, okay, we just won't give a public performance right to sound recordings. Uh, and so, you know, record labels got some of what they asked for, but they didn't get a public performance, right. Um, at least specifically in the context of terrestrial radio, which is basically the, the big one. Um, and so that, per- that persisted for many years. Um, and then in the late 90s, as you had the very early beginnings of internet radio, you know, and anyone who uses even pre-Napster, so this is really before the, the huge blow up about digital uh, delivery. But, you know, people were cognizant that this was starting to come up. There was a lot of really interesting stuff happening legislatively. And essentially, the record labels went to Congress and said, look, you know, it's it's garbage that we haven't had a public performance right up until now. At the very least, if you're not going to take on the broadcasters, at the very least, give us a public performance right for these digital performances. You know, and at that point, webcasters were a tiny, you know, relatively unorganized the, – the tech lobby, in scare quotes, was very nascent at that point. They weren't really able to argue. Uh, and so Congress decided to grant a digital-only public performance right for sound recordings. So the basic difference, all of this adds up to the fact that when a terrestrial radio station, which has been grandfathered to include digital transmission of a terrestrial radio station. So like, you know, when we had the digital airwave. Analog to digital airwave changeovers—they um, still count as terrestrial, mm. but terrestrial sounds radio- like a
0: like like a like a live stream. You mean?
1: Yeah. So, a- well, that even operates in a little bit of a weird space. <laughs> That's okay. a slightly different one. In case this isn't confusing enough. Yeah. So the end result is that um, AM/FM radio is obligated to pay the public performance uh, license for um, the underlying musical composition. To, to publishers and songwriters, but n- not to pay a public performance royalty for sound recordings. So the actual recording artists aren't getting a public performance royalty for their music being streamed on AM, FM radio. They are getting one <laughs> under a separate provision of the law for when it's streamed digitally. Um, you know, and this this is a constant point of contention. We're literally 20 years after the fact. This, this situation still exists. Um, where essentially digital streamers have to pay for a license that regular radio does not. Um, And it's, it's a, it's a perennial hot button topic.
0: Yeah. So in, in your article, you really get into how this proliferation of licensees affects the price of getting a license in the first place and sort of complicates the negotiations. And it sounds like part of the issue is that when it comes to terrestrial radio, there's a limited number of licensors that a radio station has to negotiate with. And as I understand it, it's sort of streamlined by like PROs, performing rights organizations and whatnot as well. Um, how does this proliferation of licensors that have to be part of a negotiation Affect the ability of stream internet streaming music services to kind of negotiate for the kind of content that their listeners want to want to have access to.
1: Yeah, I mean the the end result is that it uh, the short version is it it raises the price um, and it makes complications incredibly difficult. And it's not even just that there is a proliferation of licensors. um though each of those sub rights the reproduction, the distribution. So count those as one. And the public performance are each typically, at least on the songwriting side, held and or administered potentially by a different entity. Um, record labels are sort of, and that's because of these historical fights about antitrust concerns uh, that happened to the music industry when the music industry was still just songwriters and publishing houses. Um, record labels had the benefit of time. They came uh, to prominence in the slightly more um antitrust-shy era of the late 19th, <laughs> the late 20th century, um, and so there haven't been these kind of similar situations where they've broken up deliberately the, the holding of the licenses. Um, but what happens is if you're a streaming service, you have to go in and negotiate not only with several different players, but under several different legal backstops that exist. So if you need a public performance right for a musical composition, you have to license through a performing rights organization like ASCAP or BMI or CSAC or GMR. Realistically, you have to get licenses with all four of those because of the way licensing is structured. Um, And then you have to negotiate directly for the reproduction and distribution rights. Uh, Until recently, you had to negotiate directly with the publisher if you could find them, (laughs) which was there was no centralized repository to figure out who that was in a lot of cases. Um, And so that's going to be a little bit corrected. Uh, now that there's um, this m- mechanical licensing collective, which was kind of the other big thing that came out of the the Music Modernization Act. Um, and the other thing that they could do was go to the Copyright Royalty Board, uh, which is this you know royalty board that sits within the U.S. Copyright Office, which is part of the legislative branch of the government. It's, it's just a wild uh, sort of admin structure. Um, but essentially, they go in and... If they don't agree, they can bring their fight to the Copyright Royalty Board, and the Copyright Royalty Board gets to set rates for five years, um, based on this calculus that borders on alchemical. Uh, you know, trying to foresee that. Well, if this was a competitive market, what would the what would the rates look like? And the problem is, it's never a truly mm-hmm. competitive market. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and so there's all of these different venues that you have to negotiate in. Some of them are just private one-to-one free market negotiations. Some of them take place in the copyright royalty board. Some of them take place against the backdrop of the Southern district of New York, uh, which is if you're negotiating with one of the two performing rights organizations that is underneath a consent decree from the department of justice. Um, And all of these entities are not only not uh, really, especially in the songwriting side are, you know, cannot coordinate with one another due to antitrust concerns. Um, Mm. And so you have this situation where there's this truly strange bifurcated system where in one side for the sound recording, you're negotiating pretty much exclusively in the free market with a record label that holds all of the rights and can do whatever it wants unchecked. Um, On the other side, you're negotiating with this sort of hybrid system that is meant to, in some cases, simulate the free market, but in some cases, check against recognized antitrust problems that have cropped up over the years. Um, And the way that the prices are set for that one is also linked to how much you're being charged in this uncontrolled free market side. And so the end result is you have all of these players who are essentially trying to vie for the same penny out of the dollar uh, that the streaming services have to give. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have these competing claims and there's no way to, you know, they can't coordinate with each other because that would arguably raise even larger antitrust concerns than the ones that already exist.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I, I want to get more into the Copyright, um, the Copyright Licensing Board and this kind of nature of the negotiations in a sec. But I really wanted to flag something that struck me about the situation you described, which is just the immense transactions costs associated with this procedure you're talking about. I mean, I mean, you're talking about this amount of negotiation in theory over every single song <laughs> that a streaming service wants to serve up to its listeners. Now, presumably, I I would imagine in practice, what they do is negotiate with labels that have a large catalog. And so they basically buy some or all of the licensing rights to some or all of that catalog. So they get a whole bunch at once, which presumably would reduce transactions costs. But gee, I mean, that seems like it's bad news for artists who own – their own rights and don't have a label. I mean, what's the incentive for a streaming service to come to independent artists or really small labels that don't have a bigger catalog? So
1: there is a little, so there's a couple of things in there. One is that there is always in music because music is just a fundamental economic good is somewhat unique um, because you have this sort of spread of popularity where you have Beyonce at one end and then you have, the you know recordings I made with my friends in high school in a garage down at the other end of popularity where there is zero demand and there will never be any demand for those, um, and on one end the the Beyonce is non substitutable in, in economic terms you cannot swap anything else in for Beyonce and still meet consumer demand it's just impossible. Um, on the other end, if there is any consumer demand, uh, you can throw in whatever you want. And that's when you get into kind of like the elevator music genre, really. Um, you know, people aren't going to notice the difference. And so you could theoretically go out and find another good that has better licensing terms. Um, but the reality of the competitive market is that you you just you need if you want to be a, a broad catalog service, you need Beyonce. You know, and Mm. so this has always been interesting when things like Tidal come up and they have been, you know, more directly controlled by artists um, whose music is on the platform. And so that's when you have interesting things about like release exclusives and it's been this very dynamic kind of marketplace. Um, But the trade off is always going to be there between um, transaction costs and antitrust concerns because of the, the, economic nature of music. Um, if you have low transaction costs, that means that the rights are consolidated in one player who can then charge super competitive rates because you have to buy their product, <laughs> sort of no matter what. If you want to survive as a company, you must buy this product. Um, mm. And so it is it is a tension. It is an ongoing tension. Um, And the arguably the compromise is in um, the compulsory license that exists for reproduction and distribution of musical compositions, which is what the CRB deals with. Mm. Um, And essentially Mm. that compulsory license came out of the fights about player pianos. Uh, What happened, and this is, I think, pretty instructive for what's going on in the modern marketplace, um, is prior to the 1909 Copyright Act, we had there was this proliferation of player pianos, and they were everywhere. And all of a sudden, songwriters found their works being played in these venues that were scattered across the country. There was no reasonable way to monitor it, um, and all of a sudden, people were reproducing their music, sort of with wild abandon in these player piano roles. and. There were several lawsuits about this, and judges, in some cases, came down and said, well, you know, it's not really a reproduction if it can't be read by a human. Uh, and so it led to this situation where all of a sudden player piano roles that would play the music when you put them in the player piano were not considered a reproduction and therefore not a violation of the reproduction right. And so this came all the way to Congress, and the publishers sat on one side of the table, and they had essentially said, look, you know what? Fine. We will get this right, and we will get this clarified in Congress, and we are only going to license to this one-player piano manufacturer. So there was only one-player piano manufacturer that, in this sort of conception of the law, was legally able to offer any of these publishers' works, which is a huge antitrust concern both for the smaller player piano manufacturers, (laughs) who were very Mm -hmm. upset about this, and smaller publishers who couldn't get this company to take their work um, because now all of a sudden now there was no way for them to distribute their work, uh, and this got into this huge fight. and And the transcripts, if you're a if you're a big fan of early early twentieth century insults, I highly recommend that you read them <laughs> because it's you know there's a lot of you sir are a scoundrel being thrown at these these oh, congressional boy. hearings. Um, but the choice ultimately that was posed to the publishers was okay, so you know, we've got antitrust concerns because if we just give you, if we say, yes, you may restrict who you license to, you're just going to license to this one company. So like, what if anyone can print your stuff so long as you get paid? You know, as long as you get the money, anyone can go out and print a piano roll of your work. And the publishers were essentially cornered and they were like, well, I guess that's better than nothing. And so that's how we got the Mm. the compulsory license, um, which (laughs) says, you know, as long as you get paid, uh, then You know, that's fine. Um, You know, there's sort of no right of refusal. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's an interesting way to accommodate the fact that, like, in that particular instance, there was, you know, rapid, very low cost proliferation of music, and you couldn't really rein it, you just kind of had to ensure that the, the money stream came back. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's okay. kind of, you know, that's where that came from. Um, but it's that tension between transaction costs and antitrust concerns is just constantly running throughout the music industry. Um, and it's mm. doubly, it's you know, it's doubly complicated now by the fact that one half of the copyright equation, which is the songwriter or publisher half, is very much has been, you know, has been examined for antitrust concerns and is under consent decrees and has this compulsory license. And the other half just kind of, you know, only got it to legal footing well into the sort of deregulatory antitrust shy era in the late 20th century. Um, And they've just kind Mm. of been allowed to do whatever they like for all intents and purposes.
0: Right. So so maybe you could talk a little bit more about the Copyright Licensing Board and sort of where it came from and what it does, and how it sort of how its role relates to the other pieces in this licensing puzzle. In other words, does the copyright licensing board uh, is it empowered to determine licenses across the board, or only with respect to certain rights and certain players?
1: So the copyright royalty board it fills a couple of different shoes. Um, I believe it also sets rates for the digital public performance right. It has it, it essentially sets the license rates for two compulsory licenses, one of which I'm not as familiar with. Um, the big one and the one that's been in the headlines recently and that I, I wrote the blog piece about um, is this reproduction and distribution right for musical compositions. Um, and that's the compulsory license we were just talking about. Um, so essentially, the law says, okay, as long as you pay them you're, and you follow some you know basic administrative procedure, you may automatically obtain a license to the work. And how much you pay them is the question settled by the Copyright Royalty Board. Um, the Copyright Royalty Board mm. in its current incarnation is only from the last, I say, within the last 20 years. It's gone through a couple of different iterations before its current form. Um, The way that it sets rates, uh, it is only allowed to set the rate for that specific license, for the reproduction and distribution, which, again, are considered functionally to be one right. Um, They're called mechanicals for short uh, because of the player pianos, (laughs) because all of this history just keeps coming back. Um, Mm. So they set the rates for mechanicals. They do that, though, in an interesting way. They, They peg it to rates that are paid outside of their purview and set outside of their purview. So essentially the copyright royalty board generally sets rates as first off, they set what they call an all in rate, which means when they hand you a rate and they say the rate is I'm making up a number 20%, they say, okay, well that 20% of your total revenue must be dedicated to paying for the musical composition licenses in some combination. So that 20, 20% of your revenue must go to some combination of this mechanical rate that we are currently adjudicating or the public performance rate that is administered by ASCAP, BMI, sac CSAC, um, the ones either under a consent decree or not. Uh, and that mm-hmm. between those two, you must pay 20%. And if the, the public performance rate goes up, then the mechanical rate, Goes down an equal amount, and if the public performance rate goes down, the mechanical rate goes up. Um, part of this is the rationale that these, this money is all flowing back to the same people. Uh, mm-hmm. In most cases, it is just flowing back to the songwriters and the publishers in some combination. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's you know to saying like, look, let's just say this is the amount of money that is going to make its way back to these folks, rather than playing these sort of arbitrage games with what what angle it flows through. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's two, so they said the CRB sets rates, uh, you know, as a percentage number and the percentage number of this all in rate is pegged to one of two different things. It is either pegged to the total revenue that a service brings in over the course of a year, or it is pegged to what's called the total cost of content. And the total cost of content is exactly what it sounds like. It's you know, take your entire bill for content. There's some, you know, they outline what constitutes the content bill. Um, You know, take your total bill for content for the year and 17% of that, again, I'm just spitballing numbers. These are not the actual numbers the CRB set. Um, 17% of your total content bill must go to, again, some combination of the public performance rate and this mechanical rate that we're setting. Um, The problem with the total cost of content measure is the total cost of content includes the amount that you're paying out to record labels who are operating in a completely free market. So Mm. record labels are under absolutely no constraints on what they can charge. Um, And saying 17% of your total cost of content is fine until your total cost of content suddenly triples because record labels can do that. They just can. Um, you know, they. You have to assume some goodwill on their part, I guess, that they don't want to completely bleed a service dry. But uh, that's not, you know, there's a lot of sort of weird game theory going on there. Um, mm-hmm. And so, essentially, that that particular total cost of content calculation, if you're not careful, can because it's it's pegged to this sort of wild horse that can run in any direction it wants, can lead to a runaway rate if you're not careful. Um, historically the copyright royalty board has addressed this by putting a cap on it and says, look, you know, it's, it's 17% of your total cost of content up to 50 cents per subscriber per month or something. They, they would pick like a person, like X number of cents per subscriber per month. That's your, that's your Mm. top rate. And beyond that, that's just where we're going to stop it. Um,
0: this sounds a little arbitrary to me.
1: Yeah. I don't know exactly how they set the cap. But they did set one specifically to try to prevent yeah. the runaway rate. Um, right. And, and again, I don't know what it was. But and the reason we don't know what it was, that I don't know what it was, is because they forgot to set one this time. Uh, oh, boy. They just kind of uh, didn't notice. I'm, I'm, it is, there's a lot of procedural jiggery-pokery, um, as Antonin Scalia would have said, um, with the most recent <laughs> royalty board proceeding. But they didn't put a cap on the rate. Um, and so, anyone who's been seeing all the hue and cry about Spotify and songwriters recently is because they appealed this decision, partly because it didn't put a cap on this rate. Um, you know, and there's also mm-hmm. a lot of concern because major publishers are often owned by the same entities that own the major record labels, and so there's entirely the possibility that you know, all of a sudden, one company looks around, like Universal, looks around, and goes, "Huh, you know, I can use my record label." to increase the rates there and, <laughs> and jump the payment up to my publishing arm. Um, right. And yeah, and you actually, you know, and theoretically there's really three big record labels and there's three big publishers. It's a one-to-one ratio. And right. um, when you only have three of them, they're not allowed to coordinate with each other under antitrust law. And so you could have all three of them doing it at once, uh, you know, so there's, there's a real economic risk there. Um, mm-hmm. And if we acknowledge mm-hmm. that streaming is a thing that we want to have, uh, you know, maybe we need to be a little more careful about how we set prices to the extent that we allow the government to set prices. Um, and so that's, mm-hmm. that's what the big hullabaloo is about. But this, you know, in case it's not obvious, the CRB math is extremely intricate uh, and the source of a lot of angst uh, for many people. Mm. And so one of the difficulties mm-hmm. in music policy generally, but I think very well illustrated by this CRB proceeding is that it is such a complicated topic And yet it's such a complicated topic that you, you really only have the only people who can translate it are the ones who have a vested financial interest in the way that it comes out. Um, Because those Mm. are the only folks who really have people who understand how the CRB works is, you know, the, the music publishers. Um, And so the Mm. translation of what's going on come to most people comes out either through the music publishers or from the services that are repealing it. And you, there's really, there are very few um, folks who can translate that otherwise who don't have a vested interest one way or the other. And so it ends up being this area of law that is shaped perhaps more than a lot of others by um, who gets the narrative first, really.
0: Mm. 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 So, I mean, with respect to that narrative, I mean, it seems like streaming music is now incredibly popular and presumably lucrative for at least somebody. So in practice, where's all the money going? I mean, is it going to like Spotify and Pandora and services like that? Or is it going to someone else like copyright owners?
1: Yeah, that's the question. Um, So interestingly, Spotify just for the first time in its history turned a profit um, within the last six months, I think. Um, it's It's been operating at a loss, and we don't have specific eyes onto the financials of most of the other major services, but um, the common wisdom is that music streaming and music delivery is such an expensive uh, service to provide that it operates as a loss leader for larger uh, enterprises. So Amazon Music, obviously attached to Amazon. Apple Music, same deal. Uh, Pandora was recently bought by Sirius XM. Um, It's very, 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 very hard to be an independent music delivery service um, just uh, on virtue of the cost alone. Um, Spotify essentially just came into the U.S. with a slush fund from their, I think they're Swedish originally, and they just burned through it. Um, (laughs) They were operating at a loss up until very recently. Um mm. you know it is an interesting question though uh, we see this a lot with you know a couple of years ago when when taylor swift very famously um you know raised a cry about how streaming services weren't paying enough um it, it was this interesting situation because no one really knows how much they're paying out you know folks can kind of do the calculations about well an artist will get x number of cents per stream but that's not how much money is, is being paid out by the service. The money has to go from mm. the service to whoever administers the rights in the middle, which may be a rights hold. It might be a record label. It might be a performing rights organization, in which case they're actually more transparent uh, because performing rights organizations, at least the two under consent decrees, have to be very transparent by law about how they handle that money. But it just goes into sort of this black box. And the, the contract signed between record labels and services are under non-disclosure agreements. So people don't know how much Spotify is paying out to the record mm. labels. And then the amount that the record labels are paying out to all of their sub-vendors, so producers and, and da-da-da-da-da, all the way down to artists, is also under contracts that usually have non-disclosure agreements on them. So there's really no way to track the money. Um Where, how much is being, even how much is being paid off in, in aggregate, you know, we don't know how much, how big of a check Spotify is cutting the Universal Music Group. We just don't. Um, And no one could tell us even if they wanted to. So, you know, folks have done the math saying like, well, Spotify pays out X number of fractions of a cent per stream and YouTube pays out this fraction of a cent per stream. Um, and that may be accurate, but like, we don't know how that money, how that fraction is being arrived at between what goes out of the service and what comes into the artist. Um,
0: right, right, right. So the number, the amount of money going to the artist may have no relationship whatsoever to what the streaming service is actually paying in licensing right. fees. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, Meredith, in, in, in closing, I wonder if you could kind of speculate about where you think this kind of licensing thicket is likely to go next? Because it sounds like it's a bit of a mess at the moment and in need of some kind of rationalization for it to work a little more smoothly. Do you see that happening? Or do you think that the kind of thicket we currently see is likely to persist?
1: I mean... I think it's going to persist at least in the short term. Um, it has been trimmed a little bit around the edges. Um, so again, the Music Modernization Act came through. That streamlined a couple of different aspects of music licensing law in ways that are just, frankly, really good. Um, so it's it's getting a little bit better, but the underlying structures, I think, are not going to change for, for at least the near future. Um, I think the next big fight is going to be what they call sync rights. Um, sync rights are a, a very specific kind of public performance, right. Which are not actually ASCAP, BMI, et cetera, are actually not allowed to administer sync rights. Um, sync rights are the public performance, right. That you have to get when you attach songs to video. Um, and that is becoming insanely, that is, that's becoming a flashpoint partly because of YouTube, um, because YouTube operates exclusively off of sync rights or almost exclusively. Um, and sync rights are negotiated completely in the free market. And because of that in the free market. So if you think about the market for services, which pair music with video, it's basically YouTube. Um, and Spotify is getting in there a little bit, but it's it's still mostly YouTube. So you basically have a monopsony problem of one buyer. Uh, if you are, you know, if you're a, a musician of any stripe, um, and so the end result is that because these licenses are negotiated in a free market, and the free market has more or less just one buyer, uh, the prices are very low. And so folks complain about, um, and compl- and I, I say complain, but it's you know it, it's a valid complaint in that the rates paid out by YouTube are pennies on the dollar compared to what other services have to pay under because they're YouTube is using different licenses. Um. And I think that's going to be the next big flashpoint. And I think part of the reason that Spotify is starting to look at video as much as it is um, and have playlist videos and all that kind of stuff is because they can do it for cheaper. Um, it is cheaper for a service to deliver music that way uh, than it is mm. to deliver it in the traditional, you know, Spotify model of being able to stream something or download it because it, it's one license rather than having to get this whole bundle of them. Um so, uh, or it's, I guess it's two licenses. It's a sync license for the the underlying composition and also one for, for the sound recording. Um, wow. I think
0: that's actually fascinating. I, I mean, I'd never thought of it that way. And it just seems bizarre mm-hmm. to think that, I mean, essentially the same content would be treated totally differently just because you happen to pair it with a video right. of some and, kind. And
1: this again, strings back to the history because if you think about it, the public performance of, of, Musical compositions, again, going back to the early 20th century, was you know mostly in live venues. And then all of a sudden you had the development of movies uh, and movies had synced soundtracks. Uh, and so you would, and, and by this point, ASCAP and BMI already existed, the two big performing rights organizations. Um, they were already under consent decrees. Uh, the Department of Justice was eyeballing them warily, thinking like, you know, they, we've already seen them behave very badly in very recent memory. Maybe we should not let them <laughs> administer the dealings with movie theaters as well. Um, and there's this whole sort of historical back and forth. But that's where it comes from is, you know, well, this is a special situation because it was in design envisioning movies uh, and movies playing in theaters. And then all of a sudden you had movies playing in theaters and you had television that suddenly had music on it and then you had movies that were on vhs at home and then all of a sudden you had music videos and then you had and it's just proliferated um As time has gone on and now, so it it made sense in the original conception that like, yeah, this is going to be different. We're not going to have this negotiated under the existing structures, um, for various reasons. And so we're just going to keep it separate and we're going to, because it's such a limited buyer subset, it was large movie studios basically. And and then it was car commercials and then it was music video producers who were going to be, you know, working with the artists anyway. Um, and then all of a sudden you have places like YouTube. There's a digital, all of a sudden there's a digital repository for tons of music, which is synced with some kind of visual, um, you know, and it's been sort of, you know, it is a logical evolution of the system, but it's not one that would have made any sense when you were designing it originally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's probably where the next big fight is going to be is what do we do about sync licenses? Um, you know, and arguably a lot of the copyright uh, fight that went on in the EU with the new EU copyright directive was an outgrowth of the beef between YouTube and record labels for what they saw as being underpaid. Um, they call it the value gap, which is like you are making more revenue off of our content than you are paying out to us. Um, and that that Delta can be very dramatic. Um, and right, that's that's right. what spurred, frankly, a lot of the new EU copyright directive was that particular fight.
0: Wow. Well, Meredith, thank you so much. This has been incredibly informative and helped me better understand how the licensing regime in digital streaming got the way it is and, and how it works. And I'm sure it's going to be really helpful for listeners as well. I hope
1: so. <laughs> <laughs> God help us we need more more people who understand this thicket.
2: Hi boys and girls how'd you like to win a brand new bike? your own life-size doll, a flying airplane, football or other wonderful prizes? you would? Well fine. I'll tell you how you can win these wonderful prizes in just a minute. But first, listen to this. Mama Yes All our friends are getting Kenny shoes for school. Well, Kenny has more styles they may choose from. Mama, can we get some Kenny shoes for school? You make us Kenny shoes are the best values in shoes. If you listen to the radio or watch television, you've probably heard it many times before. So you see, you're halfway toward winning those fabulous prizes already. Because here's all you have to do. I'm going to play the jingle for you once again. Only this time, I'm going to leave out the last line. You add your own words for the last line, making it rhyme with shoes. That's all you have to do. Now here's the jingle again. Listen carefully. Mama! Yes? All our friends are getting Kenny shoes for school. Well, Kenny has more styles they may choose from. Mama, can we get some Kenny shoes for school? You make us Kenny shoes. There. Did you think of the last line then? Not yet, huh? Well, you keep playing the Kenny jingle over and over again until you think of one. Then when you have one, here's what you do. First of all, read all the contest rules and instructions on your entry blank. Then just print your entry plainly and either mail it to your Kinney Shoe Center or better yet, bring it to the Kinney Shoe Center where you got your entry blank and drop it in the contest box yourself. Then you'll see the bikes and prizes on display. You may submit as many entries as you wish, but they must be your own original work. Well, that's all there is to it, boys and girls. Remember, there are deluxe bicycles, life-size dolls, flying airplanes, footballs, and other wonderful prizes. So don't wait. Submit your entries now. All entries must be postmarked not later than Friday, September 30th, 1960. Well, so long now, boys and girls. Good luck, and I hope you win one of the fabulous prizes in our Kinney Back to School Contest.